When Abraham Lincoln was 23 years, years old, he was a young lawyer living in downstate Illinois. And he decided as a 23-year-old to run for the Illinois General Assembly as a representative, state representative. In his per first public announcement, he made a surprising disclosure in the local newspaper. He said this to any potential voters. He said, I am young and unknown to many of you. I was born and have ever remained in the most humble walks of life. I have no wealthy or popular relations to recommend me. Every man is said to have his peculiar ambition, he writes. Whether it be true or not, I can say for one that I have no other so great as that of being truly esteemed in the eyes of my fellow men by rendering myself worthy of their esteem. How far I shall succeed in gratifying that ambition is yet to be realized. Abraham Lincoln, 23 years old. The only thing I really want, the ultimate thing that I feel I need is to be esteemed in the eyes of my fellow men. How far I shall succeed in gratifying that ambition is yet to be realized. Now, what if we asked 23-year-old Abraham Lincoln the question we've been asking ourselves for several weeks? Who are you? What answer would he give? Well, I'm not sure, he might say. You're asking that question prematurely, he might say. I'm constructing a life right now, constructing an identity. I'm preparing a good answer to your question, but it's incomplete. Right now, as a 23-year-old, backwater, self-educated lawyer trying to run for the Illinois General Assembly, I'm just a kind of a mix of, of insecurity and ambition. All right, I've got humble roots, but... I've got my eyes on the blue skies. Maybe, maybe ask me in a few months who I am. Maybe then I'll be able to tell you I'm Congressman Abraham Lincoln. Or maybe, maybe ask in a few years and you ask me that question, who I am, and maybe then I'll be able to say I'm esteemed in the eyes of my peers. Who are you, Abraham Lincoln? In his own words, it is yet to be realized. Now, if someone were to ask you the same question, who are you? Might you give the same answer as Abraham Lincoln? It is yet to be realized. Don't ask me that question just yet. Ask me in a few months, and maybe I'll have an answer. You ask me who I am, maybe... Better yet, ask me in a few years when I've really had a chance to build some momentum on this identity here. Then I'll be able to tell you who I, I'll have a really good answer for that question. I'll be able to say, doctor. I'll be able to say, artist in residence. I'll be able to say, married. I'll be able to say, business owner. Your honor, 
homeowner. I'll be able to say pastor. I'll be able to say partner in the firm. I'll be able to say licensed counselor. There will be letters following my name, and you'll know who I am. I'll be able to say father. I'll be able to say that I'm a mother. I'll be able to say grandfather or grandmother. Who are you? Give me a few years. I'm not there yet. There's a lot of pressure in that question, who are you? Even Abraham Lincoln felt the pressure of that question. It drove him. And it drives us, doesn't it? It drives us to question our choices. Am I going to the right school? Am I living in the right city? Am I dating the right person? Am I working for the right job? Am I doing the right parenting techniques with my kids? Maybe I should have tried that other career, that other relationship, that other opportunity, that other college offer. When things go well and we're trying to construct an identity, we can feel a little bit of self-congratulation. Yes, I have made the right choices. See, I have an identity to offer you. Look at the choices I've made. But it also drives us to regret that question when we have setbacks, when we have failures, when we have pain, even if you don't want to admit that you feel regret, you feel the regret and lapse into self-criticism. Abraham Lincoln felt this acutely when he came in eighth place running for the Illinois House of Representatives when he presented himself for the first time as a 23-year-old to the world. Eighth place, he felt regret. Now, what if you could have a confident yet humble answer to the question, who are you? What if you, you could be free to be your incomplete self right now, as incomplete as you are, completely free and completely secure to know exactly who you are because you were united with someone complete who covered your weaknesses, gave you undeserved gifts, and supplied you with a supernatural confidence that did not come from your own identity construction project. Can you imagine someone who could take your setbacks and regrets, someone who could take um, your, your tragedies and iniquities and triumphs and strengths and everything about your life, everything about your life, and gave you a meaningful identity, made something of it that was way beyond your capacity to make good choices. An identity that was beautiful and meaningful and lasting. Would you want that gift? Would you want that offering? Because that is the promise of union with Jesus Christ. When we become one with him, He makes our lives a display of his wisdom. Our lives no longer are a display of good choices. Our lives are a display of his wisdom. Now, Sinclair Ferguson, esteemed theologian, defined wisdom in this way. Wisdom is the capacity to achieve the best possible ends using the best possible means. 
Wisdom is the capacity to achieve the best possible ends using the best possible means. When someone is savvy in accomplishing their goals, they don't just accomplish the right things, they accomplish it in the right way. We say they are wise. And Christ is wise. And he is wise with people that are united with him. And he is wise with the church with, which is united with him. He is, God is infinitely creative in his capacity to take incomplete people and use the best possible means to create the best possible ends with your life, mistakes included, regret included, sins included. He will make something beautiful and you will display and we will display his ability to be wise. My friend David Haskins is an artist, and he created what he calls the Skywall. And this is currently installed outside the Elmhurst Museum of Art, just about 20 miles west of here. The Skywall is an extremely large mirror. It's probably even wider than the altar here. And it's set at just the right angle so that it catches and reflects everything that's happening in the sky. All of the manifold, beautiful colors of the sky, the changing weather of the sky, the passing clouds in the sky, the things that, honestly, we don't often see, we're not looking up enough, but the mirror is set at just the right angle. It faces up to the sky, but it's also set so that people who are facing it on earth can see what it's displaying. When you and I are united with Jesus Christ, we become like that sky wall set at just the right angle, and our entire life, mistakes included, victories included, become a display of the manifold wisdom of God. But we're also set here on earth, and we are put on display for the life of the world. Not only can our neighbors and our family see the display of Christ's wisdom, but also all of the, what Ephesians call the, the principalities and powers can see that wisdom as well. The unseen spiritual realities that are at work in the universe have to look at Christ's display of wisdom when people are united with Jesus Christ. And so when someone asks us, who are you? We go, oh, I'm a walking, talking display of the wisdom of God. And how much pressure that takes off of the shoulders of individual people to define who they are is tremendous. There's so much freedom to live and work and love and make choices and make mistakes, quite frankly, without the pressure to be perfect. And don't you want that freedom? Let's look at what it takes to achieve that freedom. There's a verse, verse 10 of Ephesians 3 is a key to understanding this whole section. Ephesians 3, verse 10. So that through the church, and we'll talk about what that so that means, so that through the church, meaning everyone who's been united with Christ, not just all the individual pieces, but, but everyone together, 
the interlocking church here, the interlocking people of God. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Let me rephrase this verse. Through the church, the people who have been united with Jesus Christ, God displays the beautiful wisdom of the cross to the spiritual powers that have rebelled against him and his wisdom. The rulers and the authorities mentioned here, they are spiritual beings and forces that are unseen to us, but are bent on opposing God's will. They are bent on destroying his creation. They delight in decay, self-hatred, and division. They hate you, they hate me, they hate the church, and they hate God. And every single day, Jesus Christ holds up his people. He holds up his church to the powers, and he says, looky what I can do. Looky what I made. Can you make this? Can you turn, turn death into life? Can you turn mistakes into triumph? Looky what I can do. Can you take enemies and make them family? You can't do that. You're not creative enough. Only I have the supreme creative ability to do this through an imperfect people, through a sinful people, through a divided people. I can turn that into beauty. I can turn that into unity. And in doing so, I am showing you that I am wise. Looky what I can do through the cross. You thought this was my undoing, principalities and powers, and you went rushing to the cross because you thought it was my vulnerable moment, and I grappled with you, and I ripped your mask off, and I showed you to the rest of the world that you were no longer a threat to them. I can do that in the cross. I can do that in the church. Looky what I can do. I am wise. And every single day, evil has to bear witness to the infinite wisdom of God as it looks at how Christ is taking our lives and achieving the best possible ends using the best possible means. When we begin to see ourselves this way, when we begin to own this, internalize this, we can live more confidently and generously. We can live with greater love we can take more risks for the sake of the gospel. And we can, like Paul, rejoice in the things that to the world looks like losing, and looks like defeat, maybe even looks like foolishness. And yet we can, we can rest securely and not be undone by that criticism and misunderstanding. So let's consider what it means for us to be Christ's display of wisdom. It means three things as we look at our text. When we are united with Christ and become his wisdom display, number one, we have a weakness to accept. Okay, God's wisdom is to display his strength through our weakness. That is the wisdom of the cross. We have a weakness to accept. Number two, we have a gift to pass on. God's wisdom is to give gifts to people who don't deserve it. And then they, they, then they become gift givers to other people who don't deserve it. 
And as that process continues, that is displaying the wisdom of the cross in the world, the flow of grace. Okay, we have a gift to pass on. Number three, we have a confidence to exercise. God's wisdom is that his suffering and incomplete and insecure people will be bold and trusting in their communion with God in Christ. A weakness to accept, a gift to pass on, and a confidence to exercise. And the author of the letter had all three. He had every single one, all three, and in many ways, he was the perfect person to help us understand who we are. So let's look at the weakness to accept. Are there weaknesses in your life that you don't accept? Maybe you have weaknesses that feel like a direct threat to your chosen identity. You're trying to build an identity, but your intellect is getting in the way. You've chosen an identity, but you feel like your body is getting in the way. You've chosen an identity, but your family of origin has kind of gotten in the way. You've chosen an identity, but but your friend group is getting in the way. Something is getting in the way of who you want to be, and you hate that part of yourself. Is there a threat to your chosen identity? Is there a weakness that you have? Maybe it's the limits of your life. Maybe you find yourself financially limited, and it's, you, you can't become the person that you want to be. Or maybe you're relationally limited, and you can't fulfill the calling that you feel like you have. Now, I love who Paul calls him. We talked about how we sometimes want find to a, find a title that will just capture who we are. And Paul chose the title prisoner. Prisoner. I mean, who calls himself Hello, I'm Paul. I'm convicted felon. That's who I am. In, in verse 3 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for, Jesus, for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. You know, it's a deeply shameful thing to be put in prison, even today. This church was looking to Paul for, for leadership and shepherding, and yet he was like, Yeah, I'm in prison. I'm a convicted felon. I'm bringing you deep spiritual teachings, even though I'm in trouble with the state. You know, his goal was to to be a missionary, to to be a church planter. He he had great ambitions of spreading the gospel as far as he could. And here he was in a prison cell, locked up. He couldn't go anywhere. From a human perspective, this is a big problem for Paul's chosen identity as a missionary. A big weakness, a big failure. We might look at Paul and say, you know, God's showing you that he's displeased with you because of the setback. Otherwise, he'd be blessing you by getting you out of jail. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I am Christ's wisdom display. Look at me, I'm a prisoner. See the wisdom of the cross. Maybe, uh, like Paul, you also have a physical limitation. Paul, in another letter, said, I have a thorn in the flesh. And I've asked God three times to remove it, and God said, I'm not going to remove it. This is, this is something uh, that you're going to have, and my grace will be sufficient for you. Okay, this is an important thing to know. Weaknesses are an opportunity for us to actually need God. You know, Paul's thorn in the flesh 
drove him like a nail into the grace of God. Is that what the weaknesses physically in your life do for you? Do your physical limitations drive you like a nail into the grace of God? He owned that weakness. It was a struggle. It did not come quickly. But he had a physical, do you have a physical limitation that is getting in the way of who you want to be? Maybe it's a weakness that resulted from sin or foolishness, yours or somebody else's. Okay, Paul murdered people. He joyfully stood holding coats at the stoning of Stephen's death when Stephen testified that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul had people killed, and he thought he was serving God, even worse. And yet, Paul was called to be a leader and an apostle, and then, as you can imagine, that was not easily accepted by people. He was not just, oh yeah, come on in, Paul, why don't you lead the church that you were once persecuting? People were afraid of Paul. People were suspicious of Paul. And you know what? It was his fault. He sinned. He broke God's law and committed murder. And it limited his credibility as an apostle. He refers in verse eight, he's like, hey, I'm the least of all the saints. Okay, Paul was limited in prison. Paul was limited through a physical limitation that he doesn't specify, but it's a thorn in the flesh. And he's limited because of his reputation, a result of his foolishness, a result of his blindness and sin. Why is our author so confident? He should be so maddeningly insecure. He shouldn't be writing a letter to the church, planting churches, boasting, but he is because he knows that he's been united with Jesus Christ and that Christ will do creative and wise things through Paul's life. Christ will hold Paul, the prisoner, up and go, look at what I can do. Look at what I can do through his physical limitation, through being limited in prison, through being a former persecutor of the church. Powers and principalities, can you do this? This guy's a former murderer. This guy it, it used to think he was the brightest guy in the room because he was. And look at, look at what I can do with him. I can display the wisdom of the cross through him. He's going to be like a, a sky wall. You're going to see the manifold, beautiful wisdom of God, God's ability to do anything through anyone. Looky what I can do through Paul. He can do the same thing through you. Do you have a weakness that you have not accepted yet? A weakness of the mind? Maybe a psychological weakness that you're aware of, that you're managing, taking meds for? Maybe it's a physical weakness, a sickness that you have, a disease that you have, a limitation that you have, pain, chronic pain? Could it be that Christ could display the wisdom of the cross through your weakness? I say that Gently, hear it gently. I heard a recent interview with Johnny Erickson Tada, or Tada. She's an author. You know what? She's also a champion for 
people with physical disabilities. Um, when Johnny was 17, she uh, went for a swim, d- dove into the water, and uh, hit her head and was paralyzed on, from the neck down, became a, a quadriplegic. And as you can imagine, after that happened, she became depressed. She was, I was listening to her, she was like, I was suicidal. 17 years old, bright future ahead of her, quadriplegic. And uh, she didn't want to see anybody. But a mentor came along and, um, and encouraged her, and, and she said, he, told, he said 10 words that I've never forgotten. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Now, friends, that is not a comprehensive explanation as to how we reconcile the existence of evil and the goodness of God. However, it is one dimension of the way we come to grips with the reality of suffering and the goodness of God. Witnessed by the scriptures, witnessed by Paul the Apostle, and witnessed in the cross. God allows what he hates, the death of his own son, to accomplish what he loves, salvation for the world. God accomplished what he hates, or God allowed what he hates in the life of Johnny. He does not like, he hates disease and death and injury. But over the years since then, she bears witness to the fact that the reality of Jesus Christ has been made manifest in her life through her weakness, not in spite of her physical weakness. It's been a struggle for her, but she has owned her weakness because she is united with Jesus Christ, and her weakness has become a display of the manifold wisdom of God the manifold wisdom of the cross to the world, to her neighbor, to the powers and principalities. Our weaknesses, be they of the body, the mind, emotions, relationships, life situation, are opportunities for us to need God. Do you want to need God? If, if it's all up to you to construct an identity, you'll either feel like you are God Or you'll be covered in shame because you'll never be God. And you'll want to hide your weaknesses and reject them. But in the wisdom of God, we may rejoice that our weaknesses are cracks through which the power of God passes. They become stained glass windows through which the light of Christ makes itself known to the world. Have you covered up the cracks? Have you papered over the stained glass window? Of your life. We have a weakness to to own, number one, but number two, we have a gift to pass on. Every single one of us, and all of us together as the church, has a gift to pass on. Um, This is the wisdom of the cross. When Christ unites himself to us, he gives us gifts. We don't deserve those gifts. And then he intends for us to pass those gifts on to other people who don't deserve those gifts either. We talked about how God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God also allows what he loves to accomplish what he loves. 
That is to say, God is working good on your behalf and on our behalf in ways that are seen and unseen. He's, he's been doing that our whole life. And we're, when we're united with Christ, we receive a most precious gift that we did not deserve. Even as we enjoy that gift, we don't hoard that gift. We receive that gift, we pass that gift on. Okay, here was Paul's gift. Paul saw with great clarity, because of God's revelation, because of God's gift, Paul saw with great clarity what was uh, anathema at the time, religiously, culturally, you name it. He saw this. Okay, Gentiles are heirs with Jews in the promises of God. In fact, Gentiles and Jews um, in Christ are one family, sharing one loaf, um, answering to one Lord, participating in one baptism. There is no separation between Jews and Gentiles. Now, all of you, you know, you're hearing that, you're going, duh. It's only because people were, were not smart enough to realize that, you know. But listen, if you were in the first century, that, the division between Jews and Gentiles was so severe, it would have been, uh, you would have been like, you would have been in prison if you would have spoken up that they were part of the same family. It was reinforced through customs, through meals, through clothing, through the way society was structured. And this gift that Paul, that God gave Paul, this great, amazing revelation, which he says was hidden for years and years, it rocked the Roman Empire. It turned uh, the culture upside down. It displayed the wisdom of the cross. And Paul received this as a gift. He said, yes, this revelation that Gentiles are fellow heirs in the promises of God in Christ. This is a great gift, but you know what? I'm not hoarding it for myself. I'm going to steward it. I'm going to manage it. I'm going to pass it on. I'm going to make sure that other undeserving people receive this this gift as well. He says in verse uh, verse five, um, that this was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And he says, uh, verse seven, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Even though I'm the least of all the saints, I don't deserve it at all. I have this gift. Now listen, how has God been kind to you? How has he been kind to you? Has he given you any strengths that you don't deserve? Any unique abilities? Has he, has he given you people in your life to love? Has he given you a body? Has he given you education? Did you receive any love from any parental figure in your life? Do you have any talents? Do you have energy? Do you have any money? You know, all these things are gifts. If we started taking an inventory of all the ways God's been kind to us, we'd quickly realize that this is not a result of our choices. This is not a result of becoming an amazingly good person. These are all gifts from God for the people of God, undeserved, meant to be passed on. Back to Johnny. You know, Johnny was, she was, uh, in addition to becoming 
quadriplegic and paralyzed. She also had gifts that she learned she could pass on. She's a very articulate person. She's a great theologian. She's also very artistic. And she also, you know, has an ability to connect with other people who are handicapped. And so you know what? For, for decades now, she's been, using the, she's been putting these gifts to use for, for the life of the world, passing them on. She's been, she's been, you know, seriously doing artwork with the muscles that she has. She's been, she's been writing books. She's been speaking. She's been uh, mentoring and discipling people. She has gifts that she doesn't just have a weakness. She has a gift, just like Paul. When you're united with Christ, it means that your stuff no longer defines you, right? It's just stuff to steward. It's a gift of grace that you then begin to steward for the life of the world. You begin to pass on the gift. You don't hoard the gift. The gift is not to display something about you. Your gift is to display something about God. Display the wisdom of the cross. So we have a weakness to accept. We have a gift to pass on. And finally, we have a confidence to own. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Friends, I think some of you have lost heart about your calling. I think some of you have lost heart about your life. And maybe it's because uh, you feel like you haven't advanced fast enough. Or maybe you feel like you've screwed things up and you've not been wise. Or maybe it's because because you've been experiencing pain. And friends, I want you to know that the reason that this letter was written in part is so that we could see who we are in Christ and move beyond our discouragement. It's okay to feel discouragement. It's okay to lose heart. But the reason that Paul wrote this letter is for us to see, don't lose heart because you are Christ's wisdom display. And when you display his wisdom, that means you have a confidence to stand before God with all your weaknesses, with all your insecurities, with all the setbacks, with all the pain. And you have Christ at your side. He's standing on the the snake's head, interceding for you. And you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And you're communing with the living God every single day. And you can stand with confidence before the ultimate throne, before the ultimate father, and you can have a self in his throne room. You can have a reason to stand because of your union with Jesus Christ. And that's a confidence to own. It's not based on good choices. It's not made on your wisdom, even though your wisdom will be involved. It means that when when the carefully constructed sandcastle of a self-made identity is washed away through time or circumstances, we can actually build a solid foundation or step on the solid foundation of our union with Christ and say, yes, I am Christ's wisdom display and there's nothing to earn and there's nothing to hide. How could this ever make sense? How could mortals who are, who have honestly a pretty bad track record, who don't get it most of the time, who, who struggle. You know, they're just a 23-year-old self-taught lawyer running for the Illinois House 
coming in eighth place. How do we stand with confidence before the living God before we've had time to construct an identity? It is only through the wisdom of God in Christ. It's only the wisdom of the cross, of a God who is so full of mercy and love that he's reached us before we deserved it and brought us into the very heart of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the very pinnacle of heaven, and and invited us to say, pray, worship, rejoice, be free. Be my light, be my example, be my display for your fellow man. And be a living witness that evil will not have the final say. There's a, 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 at the end of the Return of the King in the Lord of the Rings series, there's a point in time where the great evil character Sauron, who's created this special ring that he's trying to get back, you know, he had always been assuming that if anyone found the ring, they would try to, they would get seduced by it and they would succumb to its power and they would eventually put it on and try to use it, and eventually that would be Sauron's way. He just assumed that people would be tempted and would be foolish. And that was his conventional way of thinking. That's what he designed his whole strategy around. But there's a moment where Frodo's about to drop this little hobbit who, who has bravely traveled right into the heart of Mount Doom to, to cover. He puts the ring on, because he finally does come to it, and then Sauron realizes that his whole scheme was not well thought through. He never anticipated the crazy upside-down wisdom of taking the ring back to its source. And this is what uh, Tolkien says to describe that moment. Far away, as Frodo put on the ring and claimed it for his own, the tower trembled from its foundations to its proud and bitter crown. The Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye piercing all shadows looked across the plain to the door that he had made, and the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash. And all the devices of his enemies were at last laid bare. The enemy of your souls wants to bring you down. He wants to accuse you. He wants to put pressure on you. He wants to to get you to believe the lie that if you scheme hard enough and work hard enough and are perfect enough, that you'll have a self, and he knows that you'll never have a self. So he wants to condemn you and isolate you and put all the pressure on you. Build an identity so I can watch you fail, and I know you're going to fall for it. What the enemy is never expecting, what he did not expect, was that you and I would receive what we do not deserve, which is our union with Jesus Christ, that we would be crucified with him and raised with him. And that's the moment that the enemy begins himself to despair because he sees displayed in our life, both in our strengths and our weaknesses, the manifold wisdom of God in Christ. He will begin to see, and it will be his downfall Because he will see that the very people that he has been trying to bring down and accuse and condemn are standing confidently and standing securely, receiving 
and passing on what is not theirs by rights. It is the beautiful, gracious wisdom of God. If you've already, if it's already yours, start displaying it. If it's not yours yet, come and get it. Because this is your call and that is who you are. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.